I feel somehow empty. I feel, I don't know, like I'm losing energy day by day because nothing is clear. Everything is like fog. We, we didn't have a life. There was no school, there was nothing. Not shop, no. There was nothing out there. We want these two children to have a future, to study something, to do something, and that's all that we want. By the time we got here, uh, we were very tired. It was like torture. We were thirsty, we were hungry, and we were exhausted. We lost our dignity. Welcome back to another episode of On the Ground with Samaritan's Purse, where we take you to the front lines and behind the scenes of our work around the world. I'm your host, Christy Graham. And this week, we're taking you inside a refugee camp in northern Iraq. If you're like me, it's hard to imagine what living conditions are like inside a camp. This episode goes inside a refugee camp in 2019, when thousands of Syrian refugees were flooding into Iraq. You'll have the chance to meet families that Samaritan's Purse assisted as they waited in limbo and had no idea what was next. I spoke with Caitlin, one of our podcast correspondents, while she was on the ground. After an exhausting day inside the camp, we hopped on the phone. Can you tell me um, where you are and what the refugee camp looks like? Yeah, so right now I'm in northern northern Iraq, mm-hmm. and we're working in a refugee camp just outside of Tehuk. And there are just thousands of families who are now living in makeshift tents and really just struggling with what's next and mm-hmm. what does the future look like. Bardarash Refugee Camp is made up of more than 13,000 refugees who have fled from Syria. And it is just aisle by aisle, row by row of tents. So it's actually pretty methodical the way that it's set up. So it's by sections. Um, So section A, B, C, D, Mm. E keeps going. And then the tents are just lined up row by row. They're kind of designed in a quad. So four tents will share a kitchen, share a bathroom, and kind of almost become like a family living there. We Syrians, we're all one people, and we're all alike. And we have each other in this. We have to have each other's back in this because there is no one else for us. We have to support each other. So if anything happens, I'm there for them. And if anything happens with us, they're there for us. In any case, when they always give us supplies, we always look out for each other. It was very tiring getting here, and... By the time we got here, we were hungry, we were thirsty, and, and we have to stand by each other. They didn't necessarily know each other, but they've become a community, looking out for each other and taking care of their new neighbors. I asked Aaron Ashoff, our Deputy Director of International Projects, to break down how a refugee camp in northern Iraq works. So then it's a lot of coordination between the United Nations, High Commission for Refugees, and the Kurdish authorities. So step one, people come government takes responsibility. It's actually a good scenario in Northern Iraq, like the Kurdish government's really owning it. Uh, step two, UN agency comes on board with them. They, they advise, uh, and they specialize in things, like Ed said, mm-hmm. um, uh, identification papers. Does this person have the legal setup they need so they can be protected? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have a passport? Do they, are their family members protected? Immediately, They'll, they'll point out, well, who's more vulnerable because every refugee is not the same. Mm-hmm. So then you'd say, hey, do you have uh, 
the UN is people would come in and would say, do you have elderly people in your family? Uh, who's the head of this family? Is it a child? Uh, is it a, a female-headed household? Mm-hmm. So each of those are separate vulnerability criteria that would point to like how you could receive extra provision in that camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so step two, UN gets involved. And then the, U, the UNHCR would coordinate in Northern Iraq. They're the coordinator of humanitarian groups that want to come in. So that's the stage three is where SP gets involved. And we would say, hey, Kurdish government, uh, we're registered here. You know who we are. Good relationship. Uh, UNHCR, you know who we are. Can we have access to this population to help them? Here's what we bring to the table. And then UNHCR would say, well, here's the gaps we have. Uh, They don't have water in this camp. We are bringing people in now, a couple hundred to a couple thousand a day when it really first hit. Um, Can you get water in like tomorrow? Mm -hmm. So that's when we specialize in that kind of stuff. Hey, let's activate all we got. Let's get in there with the right engineers, the right stuff we need, and open up water for people. So that's the stage where it gets the NGOs. And uh, SP's unique. Uh, we actually are good at a number of things. So we're not pre-committed to say we can only work mm-hmm. in this way. We'll get there and say we can work in a lot of ways because we draw from a lot of different strengths. As Aaron said, it's such a blessing that we are able to do work in different sectors and areas as needed on the ground. Every crisis is unique, and I love that Samaritan's Purse tailors their response accordingly. I also asked Caitlin, our correspondent in northern Iraq, to explain the sectors and the breakdown. So refugee camps are a little bit complicated and they look different in different locations where you're working. But here in northern Iraq, in Bardaresh, It is under the larger umbrella of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, which is UNHCR is most commonly how it's referred to. So they are kind of overseeing the entire camp, but then there's a camp management team and they're directly on the ground, uh, making sure that families are getting what they need, organizing the many different international actors who are at the camp, including Samaritan's Purse. So they're making sure that each section will get the right supplies that they need, clean water, and that everything kind of runs smoothly and runs pretty methodically. So Samaritan's Purse was assigned clean water in Section Mm. B. So making sure that every tent within Section D received one of the 500 liter water tanks, that all of those latrines were repaired, um, and then other nonprofits are working in different locations and in different sectors people who were displaced at a moment's notice and are now, you know, calling what used to be a plot of land home, obviously takes a lot of coordination Mm -hmm. and takes a lot of different people working together to meet the needs. Mm -hmm. Can you share what stands out to you most from the refugee camp? Until you hear someone's specific story, Mm -hmm. it doesn't impact you in the same way. So the one lady who stands out to me the most, she was actually getting her master's degree in Syria. So she's well-educated. She has a beautiful family. And she was just talking about how it's fighting and it's war and it just seems to go on and on for years. They've really never lived in peace and never had, you know, true rest. Mm -hmm. So she was like, you know, we hope and then our hopes get dashed. We start to hope again and then nothing good happens. 
And she was like, I've quit hoping. I can't hope anymore. So we did at the, in the next day directly we packed and we moved, came here. We stayed like we we reached around the border like at uh, 6am uh, p.m. and we reached here uh, three and a half uh, a.m. We stayed all that night. It was cold, and my son actually was terrified because the smugglers all the time, they were, like, wearing something, just their eyes, and they were saying, shh, all the time. And my son, like, was terrified so much. He, he, since we came here, he's, he wets his bed. Uh, he can't go outside. He, he clutching on me all the time. Like, I don't want to go anywhere without me. We go to the, that tent, he comes with me, and here he, he don't move, actually. He doesn't move. What does that do for your heart as a mom, seeing how it's affected your son? Yeah, like, it is like just two, three days. I, I stopped somehow crying because I, like, it was kind of mess coming here, staying here. Uh, all what we planned for our life, like, it was gone, you know, just in a second, in a moment, and we don't know what we will be doing. Now, all what we are, like, planning to do and dream of, like, to go out from here, and then we will see, like, what will be, what will be the plan. We don't know yet. We don't know what we, we are going to do, actually. How, how do you spend your days here in the camp? What do you, what do you think about? What do you do? What's it like here? Uh, Sometimes I'm trying to, to play with my son, but many, many of the time I'm still like feeling so much, like, I feel like I can't. Uh, it takes a lot of my energy. I think it's, it's something huge even to play with my son. I, I, I feel I can. What was it like sitting in her tent, um, sitting amongst her family, allowing her to, to be vulnerable? I think anytime somebody invites you in to sit in their tent, it's just mm -hmm. an honor because mm -hmm. we're strangers. We don't know their language. You know, we don't, we're not from the same culture. And mm -hmm. they say, hey, come on in, come mm -hmm. and sit with us. They mm -hmm. offer you cup of tea and just share their story. So it's truly an honor to sit with them and be invited in. They always try to give you the best seat in the tent. So they're mm -hmm. trying to make sure that you have the comfiest spot, sitting on the mattress, sitting on the rug, whatever that looks like. But what, what was her state like emotionally? Because you said she was well-educated, and I, I think she said she had helped the vulnerable, you know, in her old community, and now she is one of the vulnerable. What does that do to her? I, I, she was desperate, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just desperate for someone um, to hear her pain and desperate for peace mm -hmm. and desperate for kids to have a better life. I feel somehow empty. I feel, I don't know, like I'm losing energy day by day because nothing is clear. Everything is like fog. And it is all the time some kind of pain because I, as I told you, like I'm kind of a homesick person. Like we're planning to plant a lot of things in our garden we plan to help we were like gathering people to to support other vulnerable people in the community me and my husband we were very active in our community and 
suddenly we are the vulnerable people now. It's something, I don't know how to describe it, but it's painful. What is your hope for your family? What is your hope for the future? I don't know if we still have the right to to hope because whenever we we hope something some some big people doesn't allowing us to even hope, you know? Because like you hope and then you are disappointed. You hope and you are disappointed and you hope you know that you will be disappointed. And somehow, like, you stop saying, like, okay, I just wait what will be happening. I will not be even hoping anymore. Yeah, that's what struck me. You know, they they don't want to leave. You know, they didn't want to leave their home. Um, but never having having been that, never needing anything, and then having, you know, your children crying and scared and, and unable to sleep, having night terrors and, you know, just the trauma that it's doing to these people, um, even if they get to go back. But they don't know that. So how has that affected you? Um, how has it affected your faith to be watching this, listening to this? Um, yeah, but I think personally, it, it kind of just, I think it just makes you dig in deeper to your faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're getting asked hard questions mm-hmm. and you're seeing people at their worst, but you're also seeing the best of people in a really mm-hmm. kind of complicated way. But someone who's at their worst, someone who has nothing that's saying, come sit with me, come join me in my tent and let me share my story. You know, they don't have to do that. They don't have to talk to us. Mm -hmm. They don't have to open up. Um, Some people are more closed off than others, of course, but over and over again, people just share their hearts. And I think, you know, what would I be like if I were in this situation? I honestly don't think that I would be as generous and that I would be Mm -hmm. as welcoming to a stranger. Um, So it just kind of, reshapes your thoughts and yeah, just a love for people. It is easy to remain disconnected from a situation that feels far away from our own reality here, but we can't. These families need our prayers and they need our help. I asked Caitlin what it was like in the camp and she described how hopeless these refugees are. We're just hoping for a better life. We're just hoping for a shot for our kids. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the parents say, you know, it doesn't even matter about us. Um, Mm. We're old, we're grandparents now, but we want our kids to go to school. We Mm -hmm. want our kids to get a job. Mm -hmm. And that's just the kind of the heaviness that that sits on the camp. The next mom you're about to hear is pregnant with her second child. Her baby is due in just four months, but she made the journey across the border and is now struggling with what is next, terrified to give birth in a refugee camp. They kept bombarding us, and the planes were kept attacking us. Mm. So because of our children, we had to run. None of us left at first. We weren't leaving. All of us stayed. But by the time they got right next to us, we all left. All the city, they left. And by the time we got here, uh, we were very tired. It was like torture. We had my old mother with me, and it was very tired. And we, we lost. We were thirsty. We were hungry and we were exhausted, we lost our dignity. And I felt like I was gonna die. I, don't, I still don't know how I got here. 
but I felt like death was near. What's it like for you to be living in the camp when you're expecting a new baby? How will I raise these children in this situation? How will I give birth to someone in a situation like this? I just want to leave here. There's no way that we could keep going like this. I tell my husband every night, how will I care for these children here? And they need me and we just have to find a way to get out of here. I have to take care of uh, the child inside me and I keep wondering how, how will I how will I get the supplies that I need for my situation. What is Samaritan's Purse providing? So there is running water at the camp, but it only runs for about one hour, maybe an hour and a half each day. Hmm. And the sisters don't know or sorry, the sections don't know when the water will be running. So it's not like, hmm. oh, at 10 a.m. the water turns on. Wow. So it's very unreliable. Don't know when can they bathe, when can they wash their clothes, anything hmm. like that. So we have provided 500, 500 liter water tanks. So when the water does run, they're able to fill that up. And then all day long, they can take a bath, they can wash their clothes, wash their hands. So it's really improving the hygiene conditions. Hmm throughout the camp, but also restoring dignity mm-hmm. because now they can you know, take care of themselves. They can be clean. They can wash their clothes. So it's more than just, you know, a cup of water to drink. It's also their dignity of kind of restoring a little bit of normal life. Caitlin asked Cpan, our program director in Northern Iraq, who is leading our water sanitation and hygiene efforts to explain why this is so important. So when you, when you are... Like when you had to leave your country and go to another place. So the basic things that you should have, it's like the the most important things that you should have, it's having the water and the wash facilities. You can imagine, you cannot live without water. That's, That's why like having a good quality of water, like, yeah, I mean, this is so important for these people to have a good water, uh, good quality of water, um, a good and healthy sanitation system, because that will affect the kids too. Um, we have seen a lot of scabby cases in other sectors, and we know that this is because they don't have a good wash uh, facilities. So providing a good water, having a good and healthy wash facilities, uh, I think that's the most important thing to have. What has been families' reactions as you've gone throughout Section D, put in the water tanks, and gotten to meet some of the people that were helping? Yeah, they were so thankful because we did it fast. Um, I can say, like, in three days, we rehabilitate more than uh, 460 latrines. So this was so, so fast, and they were, like, so thankful for that. You're from Iraq. You speak their language. Have you had any conversations that just stand out to you or any families that you've met who kind of have just locked in your mind? Yes. I met a guy. Um, I thought, like, as a refugee, he will ask for more storage tanks or rehabilitate his um, 
latrine and like ask for food or ask for like normal things that they need here. But he were just talking to me about his kids. Mm. And he said, I don't want anything from any organization. I just want to get my kids back. Um, I told him, where are your kids? He said, they are in their tents. But because they have seen a lot of like bad things, like uh, killed people, so that that affect their mind. And they are not talking to me. They are not eating. Mm. And they are not going and playing with another kid so they are not normal now and he started crying he said I don't want anything I just want to get my kids back so that's like I can say stopped me at some points so we prayed for him and I'm visiting him I'm trying to like to talk to those kids to find a solution for them yeah have you had any interactions with the kids yet that have... No, they were just like, when, when I'm visiting them, they are just smiling, but they are not responding to me when I'm asking them, when I'm asking them, do you want chocolate? Do you want these things? No. As a normal kid, he would say yes. But th- these kids, they were saying no. Do you want to eat, eat something? Do you have a special thing? Do you want me to bring a pizza for you? I know you like pizza. and said no, just no. And that's it. So that's, that stopped me, actually. What does that kind of do to your heart? I mean, these are your neighbors just mm-hmm. over the border in Syria. You're from northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you to see them going through so much trauma? As I told you, I don't know. Like At that moment, I just started crying. I don't know what should I do, but... All I, what I could do, I prayed for them. And like, I'm visiting them twice or three times per week. So when I'm praying for them, I feel comfortable and I feel that they will be good. Yeah. It's hurting me, to be honest. Like seeing like those little kids are facing those big issues in their life. I cannot describe or explain these feelings, to be honest. The trauma is unimaginable, and there is so much heartbreak in this family's story. This isn't the first time they've been refugees. Five years ago, they fled to Iraq and have lived in a refugee camp. When the situation stabilized, they went back to Syria, and now they are once again refugees, reliving a horror story. I feel very unwell. I have nothing left except for these children. For five years, we became refugees. We put our name down in the UN. A lot of names got approved, ours didn't. We stayed here for three years. When we came here, after the planes striked, and we came here, my children didn't eat for seven days. I tried to somehow change their mood by getting out of here, but that, that, that didn't really work.
These stories are just a glimpse of the trauma these families are facing. And even though we met them a few years ago, they're still bearing the scars of the trauma of fleeing their homes due to violence. I asked Caitlin how we could pray. I think the biggest prayer request for uh, the refugees, for people who are living in these camps, uh, is for hope. Hmm. There are so many tangible that we could pray for for them, Um, from food to clean water to a more permanent place to live, to find out what's next. But the common thread between every family that I've met and every person that I've talked to is that they just feel hopeless. Mm -hmm. It's not just this crisis, but many of them have experienced years and years of unrest and fighting and violence, and they're tired, they're exhausted from it, and they've given up hope. As a mom, these stories hit really close to home. The fear and pain that are on these parents' shoulders carrying their children through such turmoil is really difficult. Samaritan's Purse continues to work in northern Iraq to help families impacted by the violence. But now we're also able to work in Syria. Millions of Syrians are still displaced within their home country. One of the tangible ways that we're meeting physical needs is by providing urban livelihood training. We offer small grants, business training, and marketing support to help business owners get started. And one of the neat things is that each business owner is able to train one or two apprentices, so the impact has a ripple effect. Another huge project that we just completed was to build a church in Syria. It's beautiful to see Christians gathering together to worship, despite the turmoil and hardships that they faced. As I listen to these stories from years ago in Iraq, it reminds me of our current situation in Ukraine, the millions of Ukrainians who are facing displacement. And the way that Caitlin encouraged us to pray for hope is something that I'm praying today for our Ukrainian families. I pray that they don't lose hope. And that is why Samaritan's Purse is serving displaced people all over the world to show God's love to people who are suffering. Thanks for listening today and have a great week.